Welcome to Murderous Roots, a podcast where murder and family meet as we explore the family tree of a killer. I hear we have something special happening today. We sure do. So we've been on a roll with guests and um, we're going to have a guest with us and we'll get to that in a minute. And this episode's going to be a little different than we've done in the past um, because it's kind of a crossover and we're not, we're Ooh. still working out the details on how y'all are going to be hearing this. So, you know, um, but we met up, you know, recently about a month or so ago with Julie Dixon Jackson, and she was a guest on our show. Well, this fabulous genetic genealogist and adoptee advocate from her own podcast, Cut Off Genes, is here again today. Hello. Hello. And how have you been, Julie? I have been well. Thank you for asking. And you? <laughs> um, Loaded a question. question. <laughs> it, it is. I mean, it's been a, a mess, uh-huh. but I'm. I I'm, hear you. I'm working a lot. I'm not getting paid, but I work a lot. Yeah, that sounds familiar. Okay, good. Yeah. Yeah. One of these days I'll get paid, yeah, right? Absolutely. You I'll are. get clients. Someday. No. No. Hey. I'm sorry. <laughs> and how about you, Zelda? I'm sorry, I forgot we're on hope and light this week. I forgot. Yes. Okay. You're supposed to be hopeful. I'm back. How have you been, Zelda? You know, it's been a week. Um, so the Russian part of my family oh. is having, obviously, uh, difficulties. Oh. And so I just try not to think about it a whole lot because apparently they're having difficulty getting communications and mm. stuff like that. So, and it's just such a horrible, horrible situation. Oh, it and, is. Um, and I mean, Russia was not that great to begin with before Putin started all of this. Right. So I'm just like, no, it's just like awful. But um, on the bright side of things... My niece is having a baby, and that's very exciting. And I finally have. Thank you, thank you. We're all very excited. Um, this is the first grandbaby on our side of the family. So, so your first grandniece or nephew? Yes, my first grandniece. I cannot wait to spoil him rotten. And I have all or of the stuff now to create the baby quilt because my mother was the maker of all the quilts in the family. Mm-hmm. And then since she passed away, I try to keep up on them, but you know how that goes. Um, but since this is grandbaby time, it's like, okay, focus, focus, get this done. Mm-hmm. So there will be a quilt made by the time the baby's born. So Yay. fingers crossed. Well, so yeah. that's a happy thing. Yeah. I mean, other than everything being a hot mess in my life right lately, I, I have, <laughs> oh my gosh, so many doctor visits coming. Mm. But <laughs> I did have a positive, and I think you saw it, Zelda, on Twitter last night, a positive genealogy interaction with somebody, which is always a thrill. <laughs> when you sit there and you send them a message going, I think you have something wrong in your tree. Here's why I think this. This is my theory. And da, da, da. and he goes, I think you're right. <laughs> I'm like, oh, what? Yes, my he goes, my, because he's done ancestry DNA. He goes, I was not finding the connections I was, I thought for this person. And then I, I had sent him a link to the will of this guy because that's what confirmed it for me. And he goes, he looked at me and goes, Oh my gosh, you are so right. Thank you so much. And asked about the show. And he's actually a cousin of a future subject <laughs> for our oh, cool. podcast. And he's like, That oh, sounds very you mysterious. You, with, you know, if you have any questions, 
He's That's like, great. it looks like you're, you're on top of it more than I am. So you're good. <laughs> That's awesome. So then I felt pumped up like, yeah, I'm good. Yeah. What can I say? Yeah. You get that little, that little, uh, <laughs> that little charge out of a positive interaction or yeah, I hear you. you. Yeah. Oh, I love those days. Mm-hmm. So today, and p- part of the reason we chose the subject to do this with Julie and her show is because it deals with adoption, but it deals with illegal adoptions. But the effect of this person, I mean, the ramifications are still being felt. Mm-hmm. Because there are a lot of people who were taken, who still don't know anything about their birth families, they're still trying to find that. Um, and we are talking about the woman who liked to steal babies, Georgia Tan. Mm-hmm. And we're going to do this a little differently, because like I said, this is going to cross over, it's going to be more of a conversation. So, which is hard because I usually script a lot because <laughs> there's so much information. But I, I came prepared. I cut up my notes this time. So they're in categories. So if Julie asks me a question, I can try to find the answer. Oh, cool. <laughs> so I'm prepared, <laughs> I think. I believe in you, Denise. Oh, we'll try. You can do this. And, and Zelda, she's going to contribute a little bit. And she's going to be a lot of the color commentary. So... <laughs> But she's going to start off. Because I swear tell a lot. A little bit about Georgia's um, life growing up. Then Julie's going to tell you all the awful stuff that Georgia did. And I did hear you guys talking earlier. Her name was actually Beulah George. Yes. Oh, it wasn't mm-hmm. Georgia. Oh, yeah. it was no. Beulah George. Yeah. Oh, wait a minute. Her, was her father George? Yes. And her mother yes. was right. Beulah. Okay. So she literally just had her parents' first names as her first and second name. Exactly. Interesting. But, um, so are we ready to get started, Zelda? Well, you know, I have to say, when when we first talked about, oh, let's do Georgia Tan, I was like, who? Who is this person? <laughs> and I have to say, I think she does win the gold star for being the biggest asshole <laughs> of anybody <laughs> we've ever had on this show. And I mean, we've had serial killers yeah. on this. Yeah. But there are, what, 5,000 instances of her assholery. It's not to mention more than that. <laughs> Yeah, and it's it's insane. And and the craziest thing about it is that but for her status in society, she never would have gotten away with it. But it was mm-hmm. her status that kept mm-hmm. everybody looking the other way. That's and how so all the bad born, guys get away with things. Sorry yeah, about that. Well, a lot of them. Yeah. Don't be sorry. Well, well, and she chose wisely choosing, you know, powerless parents to take advantage of, you know, unwed mothers and such. And I mean, just, it's just insane, though, that she was so methodical about enriching herself on the misery of other people. Mm-hmm. So Ms. Beulah George Tan, otherwise known as Georgia, was born on July 18th, 1891. And, you know, she had pretty normal parents. In fact, somewhat progressive parents for the time. Her mother was a school teacher during a time it was very uncommon for women to work outside the home. Mm-hmm. Her father was a lawyer who became a district court judge. And yeah, he had a domineering personality, but and that kind of what you expected Ben to have back then, you know? I mean, <laughs> so there's nothing we can really point to to say, okay, this is where the switch flipped or anything like that. So she grew up in society. She took piano lessons her almost her entire life into adulthood. She stopped because she didn't enjoy playing the piano. Her dad just really wanted her to become a concert pianist. That, however, was not her dream. Her dream was to become a lawyer. And he was all like, that's cray. But then she went to college <laughs> and he's like, okay, fine. If you want to read the law, that's fine. So she helped. he helped her pass the bar exam. 
But then was like, but you can't practice law because one does just not practice law as a lady. Then one does not do this sort of thing. So she's like, I don't even know what to do with myself. So she became a social worker, which was one of those few careers women had at the time where people wouldn't look a bit askance. Mm -hmm. So she moves into this. She did have an older brother. I'm sorry. She had a younger brother. His name was Rob Uh, Roy. He was was older. Was he? I thought he was three years older. Oh, I thought she was three years older than him. Let me double check, and I'm pretty sure I got this right. You know, when we're talking about dates, you're the gal. Uh, I mean, because I just am kind of like, I skim all the crazy newspaper articles. Yeah, he's he was, th- uh-huh. he was three years older, born in August 1888. So this is what makes me wonder why they didn't name him George. <laughs> they named him Rob Roy, and that's okay. Um, Interesting. But I do find I it- actually have a theory on that. I can't even wait to hear it. What is it? What's your theory? I want to hear it too. Well, so there's a book by um The Baby Thief and I can't remember the author's name. I'll get to it. It's in my notes somewhere, but um There was a movie of that too. Yeah. Oh, okay. I and think- she posited that he was adopted. Interesting. Oh. And that's why he wasn't given his parents' name. Now, I haven't seen any but it's hard to find evidence of that. Mm-hmm genealogically with the records i mean you'd have to actually have the dna to know that but was were um uh, were the tans scottish not well i wasn't able to go super far back on the tans okay what about on the other side the hollandsworths yes they were scottish? scottish yeah that because rob roy is a very famous scottish person right and his name was actually robert roy but he his nickname was rob, everybody knew so him as went, rob roy right exactly <laughs> right hmm Interesting. So One, that was kind of theory. And, and it was also based on the fact that he looked differently than his parents. And he was uh-huh. had a slimmer build. And uh-huh. both of his parents and Beulah, Georgia, whatever, um, <laughs> had a more of a robust build naturally. So nobody knows for certain. Mm-hmm. But there is that possibility. Interesting. Well, another interesting thing that kind of plays into that is that, you know, Judge Tan would sometimes just bring home kids with him periodically Mm -hmm. because they're kids who needed care. He didn't really know what to do with them because back then, you know, they didn't have all of these, you know, sort of um, humane societies that developed because they were just getting developed around this time to work with children and and vulnerable adults. Um, So especially in Philadelphia, Mississippi, and there weren't a whole lot of, a whole lot of options in Mississippi and there still aren't actually in Mississippi, but so, and then they'd figure out what to do with the kids. So she was very familiar with this concept of dragging random children <laughs> away mm-hmm. from whatever their situation is and kind yeah, of taking charge of the situation. Isn't it interesting how in how she didn't see them as humans? She never saw children as actual humans. Mm-hmm. No, you know no. I mean? Like she dehumanized yeah. them by just like in thinking that, well, you know, they're they're blank slates, which is a huge buzzword for adoptees, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Oh. Well, yeah, I saw somebody commented that on your TikTok. Oh, yeah. And I meant to comment yeah. on that mm-hmm. myself, but I about wanted to slap her. I'm like, you don't have kids. That's so clear because. <laughs> oh, yeah, and, and Julie, you handled that so beautifully because I was just like, <laughs> yes. oh, are you kidding me? And I have to admit, you know, maybe 10, 15 years ago, that's probably mm-hmm. kind of what I thought. Yep. I mean, I gave very little thought to it at all, to be really well, honest. Let me tell you, it's what I was told as well. By my wow. parents, and it's what they mm-hmm. were told by the adoption, uh, the uh, adoption agency. Yeah. That wow. was the standard, and that came directly from the playbook of Georgia Tan. 
And, mm-hmm. But once you're around babies in particular and you see them grow up, mm-hmm. yeah, there's some stuff that's from their parents mm-hmm. and how they act. But I got to tell you, my three girls are so different. And I, you, you try to raise them as close as possible, but boy, their personalities oh, are no. all their yeah. own. That, that is not a blank slate. Yes. That, there's something to that. Absolutely, there's something to it. And I can see, I was, I was uh, grappling with this this morning, how I have, I have a terrible problem with clutter. Um, I just, mm-hmm. it's very difficult for me. I, there was this whole thing on TikTok this week about doom boxes. Um, <laughs> that, you know, yeah. like people like they, they have a bunch of stuff I do and that. they don't know what to do with it. So they have, and I have them all over my house. All over I was my like, house. just one box? I'm looking, <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at them. One yes, per exactly. room. <laughs> yeah. That's how I clean. Right. I, I just grab and everything and put them and in And it's box one of those things that I have no control over. I, and I want to, and I think that I, I have dual personalities, I think because I'm adopted, but I was raised by very organized clean mm-hmm. people Same. and i have never been able to get on top of my doom boxes of my mm-hmm. clutter issues to to a point where uh, i watch uh uh, uh hoarders and mm-hmm. i'm both disgusted by it and can somewhat relate to it mm-hmm. i hate i get that <laughs> but you know what's funny is i um ancestry proved it i am my parents child mm-hmm. But they are so organized and I always drove them nuts because I was always the big mess. Yeah. But then I felt better when I would go to like an aunt's house and things weren't as organized. I'm like, okay, this is my people. Yeah. When I found my biological family on my mother's side, my mother's house is, uh, I get it. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And she's, and like all of the family, I see pictures from different events at different people's houses and there's mm-hmm. clutter. It's just, yeah. and it, it is, I, I believe that is one of those things that is in me. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I cannot, no matter how much I try to not uh, be that way. And uh, anyway, I'm sorry, I, we totally got yeah. off track. Okay, continue. Oh, well, so we've, we've assessed that she was an asshole. And <laughs> I have not told you why she is an asshole, because that's actually Julie's job on today's uh-huh. podcast. But... Yeah. Um, I am leading you up to the point where after she was a social worker, she decided to find employment at the Mississippi Children's Home Society working as the receiving director at the Kate McWillie Powers Receiving Home for Children. And that's where I'm going to end my part because it gets very interesting after that. Okay. Yeah. This is where I come in. (laughs) Okay, so yes, after she became a social worker, she worked very briefly at the Texas Children's Home Society uh, after she graduated. Uh, But there's really not much history about that. I looked into it to see if I could find something about how she was there. But it never, uh, never came about. I was trying to um, get to the bottom of a theory that is has been out there for a few years and see if I could get to the bottom of it. But I was not able to. So I will say there, I did find something in the newspaper two days ago, not about Texas specifically, mm-hmm. um, but that she actually, she started her career before Texas. She was working as a teacher at the small town in Mississippi for a time. Okay. And then she went to, it's like she had multiple different jobs. Okay. So she was, she was a teacher, but she wasn't. She wasn't working for Children's Home Society. Right. Them. And okay. then I think that led to the Home Society. Okay. But then, you know, she actually, there was um, an article in the paper. She was coming back 
with her friend to visit home. This is 1918. So it's right before Texas. Mm -hmm. And she was working at, I think, a home in Louisiana. Okay. Hmm. So a child's home there based on what was said. Okay. Interesting. All right. Let's, we'll get, we'll get to that. To why we'll I was get to looking. That, but go okay. ahead. So in 1922, Wild Georgia was working for the Mississippi Children's Home Society. Uh, she adopted an infant, and she mm-hmm. named her June. I never knew this about Georgia Tan. I did not know that she yeah. had any children. Or oh that yeah, she had, I have lots adopted. to say on that one. Okay, good. Okay, so the daughter, uh, a, a daughter of a family friend named Ann Atwood, also worked at the home. As a house mother, she was eight years younger than Georgia. It's unclear when they became a couple, but hmm. I guess you were going to get to that. <laughs> Are you sure they weren't just good gal friends? Well, that's what that's what everybody thought. For they're just good obviously. gal friends. Yeah, they were gal <laughs> gal pals. It was called a Boston marriage. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. As one does when one is an right. independent woman of means and has yes. no desire mm-hmm. to marry. Right. So, so yeah. That, so what what happened was that that they were very close friends, and they lived together with. I, I think she had a child as well from a yes. previous marriage. And but in 1924, Tan uh, was terminated from the Mississippi Children's Home Society for because of her questionable child placing methods. Uh, now we don't know what exactly those were and what she did but she was terminated yeah the boston marriage thing blah 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 so after <laughs> they <laughs> um, she gets fired and then they go to tennessee and and in tennessee okay now we're back on track in memphis tan was hired as the executive secretary at the shelby county branch of the tennessee children's home society its offices were located on the fifth floor of the Goodwin Building, and it was the largest in the state and had branches in Jackson, Knoxville, Chattanooga. She used aggressive tactics to eventually take over the organization. Hmm. So she had a plan. Yeah. Right. So while Tennessee law permitted agencies to place children with appropriate applicants in an effort to ban the selling of children, they could only charge for their services. In keeping with the law, a society would charge about $7 for adoptions within Tennessee. Georgia had an idea to get around this law. So she arranged for out-of-state private adoptions in which she charged that bitch. a premium. <laughs> exactly. As many as wow. 80% of these adoptions were to parents in New York and California. Mm-hmm. Records indicate wow. that between 1940 and 50, the agency placed 3,000 children in just those two states. <gasps> oh, there my two God. Workers. Mm-hmm. There were two workers, Alma Walton and Regina Warner, who both worked for TAN. And they made a trip every three weeks with four to six babies. Walton went to California and Warner went to New York. Can I break They'd in for a ho- second? Yep. Because... Okay, to do that many adoptions in that period of time, she was basically like Oprah, and you get a baby, and you mm-hmm. get a baby, and you get... That's insane. I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. she couldn't be doing background checks or anything, right? Oh, of course not. No. Although oh she did charge for background checks, but she didn't actually do them, but that was a way of making more money. Oh, my God. And there's an irony in this. Wow. Because at, at some point, Tennessee <clears throat> was wanting to pass a stricter adoption law mm-hmm. to make it a little bit more... And she said, well, you know, there's some good things to the law, except, 
you really need to do these family checks before you give the baby. And I'm like going, like you do? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Wow. Thanks for Um, letting me cut in. (laughs) uh, Sure. So they'd rent hotel rooms and they would have these kids there and prospective adoptive parents, most of whom were wealthy, would come and she'd parade them around and they would decide which one they wanted. Um, (gasps) Each couple would pay U.S. $700 in a check made out to Georgia Tan. (gasps) Not the Tennessee Children's Home Society. Okay, so everybody kind of had to know this was on the down low. I mean, oh, of course. no wealthy of course. person is going, oh, yes, let me write you a personal check to you, thinking this is on all above board. Wow. Right. Exactly. Um, additionally, she would charge prospective parents for background checks that she never pursued, air travel costs at exorbitant rates, and adoption paperwork at five times the actual cost. The state of wow. Tennessee itself was contributing $61,000 a year to the agency with 31% of that money going towards the Memphis branch, which was George's branch. Wow. Profits were kept in a secret bank account under a false corporation name at the time. Adoptions in states such as Mississippi, Arkansas, and Missouri could be arranged for $750. It is alleged that she pocketed 80 to 90% of the fees from these adoption for her own personal use. Oh my God. She also failed to report the income to either the society's board or the IRS. In 1970, in a 1979 interview with the Los Angeles Times, Tennessee Special Prosecutor Robert Taylor reported that 1,200 children were adopted out of the home between 1944 and 1950, but only a few of them remain within with Tennessee families. Yeah. Oh my God. Notable personalities who used Tan services included Joan Crawford. So Christina Crawford was not from Georgia Tan, but the twin daughters, Kathy and Cynthia, the younger ones, Mm -hmm. um, they were, they came directly from Georgia Tan. Wow. June Allison and husband Dick Powell. uh, June Allison? Oh my God. uh Yeah. Used the uh, Memphis-based home for adopting a child, as did the adoptive parents of professional, uh, a wrestler, Ric Flair. I don't know who that is, but... Apparently, he came from there. Uh, here's This is interesting. New York Governor Herbert Lehman, who signed a law sealing birth certificates from New York adoptees in 1935, also adopted a child from the agency. That is not true. Oh, okay. That was what, and I'll get to that at the end. That is actually okay. a, a theory. His children were adopted, all adopted before 1921. Oh, okay. And they were born in New York and Maryland. Okay. Yeah, and she wasn't adopting out kids at that point. Exactly. And he, though he did sign that law, the law of sealing birth certificates, but it had nothing to do with a connection to Georgia Tan. So that is the conspiracy theory I was uh, referring to that a lot of people oh, okay. think is true. Well, yeah. Okay. A lot of people think that, uh, have always said that the Governor Lehman was in the pocket of Georgia Tan or vice versa. Um, mm-hmm. But the two, I we there's no evidence they ever even met. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, she had enough other people in her pocket. She didn't need the governor, you know? Yeah, exactly. But yeah. She, well, she had many, many um, judges and politicians in mm-hmm. uh, Tennessee that helped her. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and yeah. we will get to them. She used a, vi- a variety of methods to procure children. Through pressure ta- tactics, threats of legal action, and other ways, she would dupe or coer- coerce birth parents, mostly poor single mothers. This, this, mm-hmm. was, this actually still happens. 
to some extent, coercion. Yeah. I'm just saying. Um, mostly poor single mothers to turn the children over to custody, often under false pretenses. Alma Sippel, one of Tan's victims, described her as a stern-looking woman with close-cropped gray hair, round wireless glasses, and an air of utter authority. Uh, she also arranged for the taking of children born to inmates at Tennessee mental institutions mm. and those born to wards of the states through her connections. Wow. To meet demand, she resorted to kidnappings. In some cases, single parents would drop their children off at nursery schools only to be told that welfare agents had taken the children. In others, the children would be temporarily placed in an orphanage because of a, a family was experiencing illness or unemployment only to find mm -hmm. out later that the orphanage had adopted them out uh, or had no record of the children ever being placed. Oh, my God. Convenient. Yeah. And I think one thing our listeners might not know, um, being that this isn't a topic we cover, like ever, is that, mm -hmm. you know, before about, you know, the 1950s, 1960s, there just weren't a lot of laws around adoption. And mm -hmm. right. orphans were considered that any home was better than being on the street than being in an orphanage. And they sure. would literally, there's, I read this book called Orphan Train. I don't know if you've ever read that book. Oh, yeah. But yeah. they would basically pile children onto a train and make various stops along the way out west. And people could just come mm -hmm. and be like, that one looks farm worthy and take them back. And they were used yes. as and abused as just farm labor. I mean, five, right. six yeah. year old children, younger than that, even, and just used as yeah. farm labor. And so I what? Wasn't that kind of like the premise of Anne of Green Gables a little bit? Mm -hmm. Actually, yes. Mm -hmm. Although they actually had to go to the orphanage and pick her out. But yeah. Um, but back I'm then, one of the few people our age that doesn't know Anne of Green Gables. I've only watched one episode okay. of Anne with an E, and that's the only reason I know okay. it wasn't my thing. But okay, I so your reading assignment is now to read Anne of Green Gables because she is the ultimate adoptee. I mean, honestly, the, one of okay. the original adoptees. <laughs> How did I in miss literature? That? In literature, that's crazy. Mm -hmm. Oh, there's so many. My yeah. the ones I relate to. I think of all the historical and fictional even stories from my childhood that I glommed onto and I realized there's a running theme. Jane Eyre was one of my all-time favorite movies. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Jane Eyre. And then, of course, Annie. And a, and a lot of it, like, that whole aspect of it was totally lost on me mm -hmm. in my little adoptee fog that, mm -hmm. that I loved these so much. I didn't realize that it was because we basically came from the same situation. Interesting. You know, it's called adoptee fog. Okay. So um, <laughs> she was also documented as taking children born to unwed mothers, claiming that the newborns required medical care. When the mothers asked about the children, Tan or her accomplices would explain that the babies had died when they had actually been placed in foster homes or adopted. That's just so heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. And, and sadly, um, very common that it was. Yes. She's not the only person common. that pulled that stunt. Oh, no. No. She was just the worst offender. And the most famous. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she also, I, it'll probably be in my notes, it's probably here, but there are lots and uh, we haven't gotten to the part about the real crimes. Uh, yeah. Because mm -hmm. she, well, I'll, let's just see. I'll get there. I'll get there naturally. Okay. Tennessee Children's Home Society had been dropped from the Child Welfare League because of its repeated failure to have homes of foster parents investigated prior to the placement of adoption for children. Here's another thing. Tan destroyed records of the children who were processed through the society. She destroyed records and conducted yeah. minimal background checks 
uh, on the adoptive homes. As a result, the Child, Fair, Child Welfare League of America dropped the society from its list of qualifying institutions in 1941. So it was dropped from the list, but it was still, it wasn't shut down. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and even the newspapers between then and when she got arrested were all praising her in her work. Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, let's well, she's helping the poor orphans. She's helping the let's orphans. Let's talk about, let's talk about that. Um, le- yeah. Let's talk about every Christmas she would advertise babies as Christmas presents that you could put under the tree mm-hmm. in the God. local newspapers. Oh, yeah. Uh, and may, and wow. that, that was a trigger for me because I went back in doing my oh. research of my adoption and where I was adopted from. I was adopted from the Methodist Babies Home in Melbourne, Australia that had, that basically ran the same, started around the same time as the Tennessee Children's Home Society and uses a okay. lot and used a lot of the same tactics. Oh. I have copies of advertisement, ad- advertisements from the Methodist Babies Home that had pictures of like three little blonde babies eating like sitting at a table eating porridge or something and it said um methodist babies home saving uh saving slum baby slum baby since 1932 or something like that oh That's my horrible. god and yeah, that was so happening in the 60s and 70s all of the babies they were they the methodist babies home ran up until uh the late 70s and oh gosh, then became the Copeland Street Family Center. That is the place where I obtained my original records. And now it is, I've actually visited the site. It's now condos. But you, there's a, there is a, a Facebook page of former mother care nurses that worked there, that graduated and worked there. And I'm constantly stalking that page going, hey, is anybody there that was is anybody here that was a mother care nurse at the methodist baby's home from april to june of 1965 because that's when i was there Mm -hmm. and i am haunted by what what my life may have been like at that time well yeah i mean i've listened to your show you were yeah there two months was it i was there two months and and you weren't really picked up or touched or as far as i know well the only evidence i have of that well first of all it's like why you know having had babies of my own i know how important Mm -hmm. human touch is and and responding to needs so that's that's when i came out of the fog um so i my parents used to tell me all the time that when they brought me home they called me the blob because I just laid there. Yeah. And that haunts me because I just didn't expect anything. Wow. And I was just, obviously. It breaks my heart every time you say that on the show, too. Yeah. it's It, it kind of just, does mine, too. Uh, oh, it, yeah. Well. But it explains so much about me. <laughs> I hate to say it. But, you know, I've been in therapy for my entire yeah. adult life. And it just... Well, of course, of course, I have attachment issues. Of course, I have abandonment issues. Of course, I I, I just want to do everything right. I, of course, I want to be perfect at everything because I don't want people to send me back. All of those yeah. things, you know, and it was it was very unconscious as a child, but it all makes sense as an adult. Mm-hmm. all <laughs> Sending a virtual hug right now. Thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. I feel it. 
Okay, so she destroyed the records of the children um, who were processed through the society and conducted minimal background checks. We know that many of the files were fictionalized before being presented to the adoptive parents. Standard procedure still happens today, guys, which uh, Mm -hmm. covered up the child's circumstances prior to being placed with the society. For instance, the children that were taken from uh, unwed mothers in uh, state institutions or mental institutions, they they would never be told that that's where they came from, that oh, there gosh, was no. any kind of uh, issues, uh, mental issues with... Especially back then, because... Oh, the, that's ad- a huge... Do- adoptive parents would be like, no way. Yeah, mm-hmm. damaged goods. Um, when an adoptive parent discovered that the information on the child was correct, such as in cases of falsified, falsified medical histories, she often threatened the adoptive parents with possible legal action that would force a surrender of their children. So these people had already bonded with these children. And, mm-hmm. you know, so she would tell them, okay, great. Uh, then you have to, you're going to have to send them back if we do anything about it, if you prosecute me, because you're not going to be allowed to keep them. So that was held over their head. Um, her crimes were accomplished with the aid of uh, Memphis Family Court Judge Camille Kelly, who mm-hmm. used her position of authority to sanction Tan's tactics and activities. Tan would identify children as being from homes which would not provide their care, and Kelly would push the matter through her dockets. So basically, if a case came through Judge Kelly's uh uh, courtroom and Tan was attached to it. She wouldn't even look at it. She'd be like, "Yep, this this is this is legit," and it would go through. Um, wow. She also uh, severed custody of divorced mothers, placing the children with Tan, who then arranged for adoption of the children into homes better able to provide for the children's care. However, many of the children were placed into homes that were used as a child labor, as child labor on farms or with abusive families. In a letter drafted in 1947, Tan's attorney, A. Waldauer, said that the prospective adoptive couple had complete custody and control of a child for one year, may submit the child to any physical or mental examination they wish and take any steps they may desire to ascertain they have a healthy and normal child. If it is not, the Tennessee Children Home takes it back without question takes oh it back takes yeah. it back yeah oh yeah so that was their guarantee <laughs> wow like, oh well a 30 day yeah yeah this one is like 360 it was one day. year it was a pretty good deal um bypassing <laughs> shelby county probate court most of the adoption cases were handled in the counties of dyer haywood and hardeman wow which is she, interesting yeah <laughs> yep she also that should have been a sign right there. Oh, sure. Yeah. Why would you need to do that? Tan also had connections with former Memphis, Tennessee mayor E.H. Boss Crump, who continued to have an influential political presence until his death. He had long been known to take bribes from unlawful establishments brothels and gambling halls a fact which tan used to her advantage she enjoyed a lavish lifestyle and was widely respected in the community counting among her friends prominent families politicians and legislators while in her care tan mistreated the children with reports of neglect physical abuse sexual abuse and murder with no housing facility society held children awaiting placement in public facilities and foster homes In the 1930s, Memphis had the highest infant mortality rate in the nation, (gasps) largely due to tan. Oh, my God. In 1943, a wealthy businessman donated the mansion at 1556 Poplar Avenue to the society. The 
and intake rooms were put on the bottom floor while the nurses nurseries were upstairs. The all-female staff wore all-white nursing uniforms, despite the fact that they were mostly untrained and even substance abusers. The children were frequently sedated, mm-hmm. and those who were difficult to place were allowed to die of malnutrition. Oh, my God. Tan regularly ignored doctors' recommendations for sick children, denying them care or medicine, which often led to preventable deaths for illnesses such as diarrhea. So um, basically, she was a serial killer. She was a serial just killer. Just not in the way right, we typically yeah. think of. Yes. Uh, some of her victims are known to be buried at Elmwood Cemetery uh, in Memphis, Tennessee. Other children were never accounted for. It's believed that they are actually probably buried um, at the site of that uh, the house on Poplar Avenue. And there have been people, They that building has been torn down since and something else built there. But there are people who are, who have a connection to people who may have died in, uh, under Georgia Tan's care that are trying to get that site uh, dug up, basically, to see if they can find, yeah, excavated. Thank you. Big words are hard. Um, understand yeah uh while some of her victims were going to be buried i said that other children were never accounted for and the exact number of deceased children remains unknown with estimates of over 500 deaths due to mistreatment investigations and criminal charges at the time so-called black market adoptions were not illegal but were considered ethically and morally wrong reasons of the day included the fact that young unwed mothers were often coerced to give up wanted children the suitability of uh, parents were often ignored, information about the child's heritage and medical history was lost, and adoptive parents were unaware of any mental or physical illness. Wow. The Tennessee governor of the time, Gordon Browning, launched an investigation into the society on September 11th, 1950, after receiving reports that the agency was selling for children for profit. He assigned Memphis attorney Robert Taylor to the case. And the public welfare commissioner, J.O. McMahon, accused Han and her cohorts of receiving as much as $1 million in profits. The yeah. Tennessee Children's Home Society was closed in 1950. So Tan was charged and was caught, basically, and charged. But she died of cancer before she could be sent to trial. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. She died of uterine cancer three days before the state filed charges against the society. Thus escaping prosecution so she got away with it judge kelly was believed to be receiving bribes for ruling in tan's favor however a 1951 report to browning by the tennessee department of public welfare said that while she failed on many occasions to aid destitute families and permitted family ties to be destroyed she had not personally profited from the rulings she (laughs) retired shortly after the investigation and died in 55 without any charges having been brought against her for some reason i doubt the truth in that statement yeah i'm sure there was something yeah passing uh, it sounds like a forced retirement like right yeah yeah that usually happens you step um, down or you're we'll, we'll have to press charges right <laughs> right exactly uh let me see tan bought the lot oh the the memorial for the babies that are actually buried at elmwood cemetery was let me see i'm just gonna read it 
Over several decades, 19 of the children who died at Tennessee Children's Home Society due to the abuse and neglect that Tan subjected them to were buried in a 14 by 13 foot lot at the historic Elmwood Cemetery with no headstones. Tan bottled the lot sometime before 1923 and recorded the children there by their first names only, such as Baby Estelle and Baby Joseph. In 2015, the cemetery raised $13,000 to erect a monument to their memory. It reads, in part, in memory of the 19 children who finally rest here, unmarked if not unknown, and of all the hundreds who died under the cold, hard hand of the Tennessee Children's Home Society. Their final resting place unknown, probably at that on Poplar Avenue. Their final piece a blessing, the hard lesson of their fate changed adoption procedure and law nationwide. Sure, that's true, but not enough. Right. I will say that Georgia Tan is the godmother of modern day adoption practices. While many of the things have been changed, the way that adoption has been done as a business, and it is a business, there are still so many laws that need to be changed or so many regulations that need to be altered in the adoption industry, such as I personally don't believe that adoption agencies should be for-profit agencies. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. Mm -hmm. That's why it's so expensive to adopt a baby. Yep. Yep. I mean, yeah, we would, we might have considered it at some point if we weren't able to have children. Right. But we're looking at like 25,000 or more. Right. And it's like, yeah, no. Yeah. And that's money is not going to the biological mother, by the no. by. No. It's going to a bunch of people who procured mm-hmm. her uh, to give up her child. Exactly. Um, and also, the most important change that needs to be made, I believe, as an adoptee, <laughs> as someone mm-hmm. who has lived it and is connected to multiple other adoptees, is that the voice of adoptees with lived experience needs to be the most prominent voice in the adoption industry. Yes. Uh, I am not for the abolishment of adoption. Mm-hmm. I think there is a place for adoption. However, adoption needs to be adoptee centered. Mm-hmm. And the experience yes. of people who are adopted needs to be the loudest voice, not the adoptive parents who think that they can read the minds of their of their children. Yep. But the uh, the people who have lived it and now I'll get off my soapbox. While you're <laughs> on that, oh okay. Um, the closure of records. I think every human being has a right to their history. Yes. And if you are oh, yeah. adopted, it does not matter. You have a right to the history that's known about you. And yep. although, you know, when I was in high school and I went to Catholic school and so, you know, adoption is of course always placed like this is what you do As if the, bad things happen, right? This is the gold yes, standard. Right. Yes. That and is, yes. And at that time it was everything was closed book. So, I mean, the records mm-hmm. wouldn't be available because at the time there's just so much shame around it, you know? And so it's, it's one of those things where I look back and I know people my age who were adopted. I know women my age who had children who were adopted out and, Mm -hmm. and they're dying for each other. You know what I mean? It's Mm -hmm. obviously, you know what I mean, Julie, (laughs) you know, that that just (laughs) having the information, not knowing like something happens medically and you don't know, okay, is this a family trait? How did this happen? You know, 
Are there possibilities other things are going to happen? Or even just something simple like what kind of culture was I going to be raised in? You know, there's just so many things. Well, that's interesting because, Denise, what you just said was it's beyond that. Yeah, but for the average person who is not adopted, Mm -hmm. if you mention the medical records, that is the only thing that makes them say, oh, yeah. That really? sucks, as opposed to the other things, the cultural things, the, and that's so the genealogical things. Uh, I mean, I had a cousin who was adopted. We always, I always knew he was adopted. I don't remember a time where I didn't know he was adopted. Mm-hmm. It was not a secret in our family, right? Thank goodness. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he knew. I had, I had a, I had an aunt who was adopted that everybody knew but her. Oh God, <laughs> awful. Imagine that. <laughs> and I've been helping. He, he's not interested in knowing stuff. You know, he's like, I don't. Yeah. He tore stuff up when his mom sent stuff because his daughter's wanting to know she's been having some health issues. Mm-hmm. And so he like, could you request this? And he's like, no. And so as soon as she got the night, my aunt was able to request an identifying information as the, uh, the woman who adopted him. And so got that and sent it to him and he tore it up without reading it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's how much... Yeah, he needs to think about his children. He could have just passed it on and right. said, don't, I don't want to know. Well, she made a copy. Oh, good. So oh, okay, she did good. keep good. the copy and gave it to her granddaughter. But even the granddaughter, she can't request his original birth records nope. to find information. And and he was adopted in Virginia, mm-hmm. and they do not have an open records. They have a system like, you can request it, and then if that birth parent's okay yeah. with it, we'll release it. Yeah. You know, though, in a way, I kind of am okay with that, because you should have control over your own records to a certain point, you know, like not when it comes to somebody that came out of your body. So like Denise, when you're when your kids grow up, they want to have your medical records. You're like, no, this isn't your business. You're okay with that. Well, I I know what you're saying. You're saying because she wants it. But my my cousin had talked. She's like, if I get him in a good mood, I might be able to get him to put the request in. Mm hmm. Right? Because this is her medical records as well. Yeah. Even even if he did, Mm -hmm. he's having to rely on his birth mother, A, them being able to reach his birth mother, Mm -hmm. and B, her saying, okay, you can have the records. Mm -hmm. That doesn't seem fair to me. I mean, they're not, here's the thing, they're not the mother's medical records they're going to give them. They're just the medical history that they have. That she provided them. And it's the birth certificate. She won. Yeah. It's basically. Okay. So let let me. let Most Americans don't know this. There's only five or six states currently in the U.S. that allow that the records are open for adoptees to wow. receive them. That's and it? And like, that's it. Yeah. Wow. Out of 50 states. There are a few more that are that call themselves open. But if the mother if the biological mother contacted them and said, No, I don't want these Mm -hmm. released, they can't have those either. That's like Virginia. Yep. Mm -hmm. And then the others, uh, all the other states are slammed shut. You have to get a court order and it is very difficult to get a court order. You have to go through but, so much. But surprise, there's this thing called DNA now. But that's why I have a job. <laughs> yes. And I want to do your job. That's I, I, what I, I, had so I mean. Much fun. DNA solved my mystery and I realized, oh, I have a new skill. And. <laughs> And I know a lot of adoptees that can't have their birth records, and I can help them. I love your job, by the way. I fell in love with it. It was like the ultimate puzzle. Yep. 
Yeah. You've done a good job though. I'm impressed. Good for you. Thank you. It's, <laughs> it's research is my thing. It's addicting. I know. I know. And I puzzles. I, I, the on this other thing that we're going to talk about I've like delving back into it and I looked at the records again and I'm like oh there's there's more stuff in here for me to find out well, that I still you know want to get to the bottom of and, so I'm gonna I guess get started with my side okay. and before I start I do want to say um I have a quote and I think it gives perspective on Georgia and her family and her attitude towards these children and in particular their birth parents and this was from The Baby Thief, and I have the author's name now, Barbara Besants Raymond. And she said the following, Georgia considered poverty the worst possible condition. It was her upbringing. She was from a very snobbish family that looked down on people in those shanty houses who got their hands dirty for a living. Andre Bond of Biloxi, Mississippi told me this. She was like, the, if you were poor, you didn't, weren't deserving of children, basically. Mm-hmm. Saving that, the slum babies since 1921. And I find <laughs> there's a certain irony that will come into this with her family that okay. I found. So I mean, right. irony, but I just found it interesting. Um, she like she grew up in Hickory, Mississippi. And <laughs> what's so funny is I'm trying, I'm looking at her stuff as well. And I found this and I, I had to share this. And as a genealogy nerd, you'll appreciate this. I found her in the 1920 census, three different places. I just love you that. Tell. Okay. <laughs> on January 8th, on that date, um, she was in a live-in position as the head of the Mississippi Receiving Home. Mm-hmm. She had 17 children residing there, plus four other staff members, including Miss Ann Atwood, who was listed as the house mother, as you said. Mm-hmm. On the 16th of January, Georgia worked as a social worker for a church in Fort Worth, Texas. She it's lived with 12 person. others. Huh? It's the same person? Yes. Wait a minute. What what was the date of the first one? January 8th. Okay. And then now, the second one? It's January 16th. And the third is going to be January 28th. Okay. So now the census enumerator instructions, I should explain that first, was that write the name of the, per, you know, the people who live here, that their usual place of abode was here on January 1st, 1920. So it could have been she was transitioning in two different places and they just put her because she had just been living there and they thought that's how it applied. And then she moved. It's confusing. Does the record uh, have the the X with the circle that says who responded to the they census? They didn't have that in 1920. Okay. Oh, okay. Adding that until later, okay. unfortunately. Um, but in Texas, she lived with 12 others, six of which were social workers, and they lived in the boarding home of fellow social worker B.C. Green. Also living in the home, and this is what confirmed, this is Georgia Tan, was Ann Atwood. Uh-huh. And she had no occupation. And she's listed as George Tan and a male. Yeah. Oh, she might not have been there at the time. I mean, would it be something where it's like, oh, her name's like, yeah, George so Tan or whatever. Back, and yeah. And somebody probably they they just wrote it down. But, but yeah. a male. But maybe yeah. they called her George. Maybe that was. Her yeah. Nickname. And so then yeah. they just forgot and said, oh, yeah. Yeah. And or the enumerator said, oh, that sounds like a male and put down male. You never know. Mm-hmm. Why they're yep enumerators were human. <laughs> yes, and back then, you know, they, your neighbor they, could sit there and report who lived somewhere. Yeah, you know, they weren't relying on everything on the yep. person there. Yeah, it's not fact; it's just what somebody says. And yeah. the twenty eighth of January, it's her parents who counted her as living with them in Hickory, Mississippi, and they mm. listed her as traveling and employed at an orphan's home. Oh, okay. So I guess they just said, "Oh, we'll just count her too." Yeah. So she, mm-hmm. I'm, I've seen twice, you know, getting double counts before. Never I've seen, seen it three before. before. 
Yeah, three is big. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Interesting. Wow. And for some reason, my searching skills died because I cannot find them in the 1930s census. Oh, I hate that. Yeah, hmm. it's annoying. <laughs> so what do you want to know first, Julie? I have all this information. Oh, gosh, I don't know. You surprised me. Okay, well, <laughs> we'll start. We'll start with her p- parents. All right. Because um, I believe it was Zelda who said, you know, these nice, normal parents and wonderful. Yeah, not exactly. <laughs> I don't think. Oh, um, Zelda. oh no. Do tell. <laughs> okay. So her father was Judge George Clark Tan. And as you look at the newspaper articles from their community, as you look at the census, you get this feeling that this family cared more about their image than anything else. They looked down their noses at people who struggled financially. And the judge lacked any sort of compassion, I believe. Like he, there was none, especially for those who earned less. What I find amusing about this is his grandfather, Alfred Tan, in the mid-1840s was insolvent mm-hmm. and was described by his father-in-law's estate in a lawsuit he filed against him. And it said, Alfred is embarrassed and poor and unable to support his family. Wow. So this whole mm-hmm. general attitude of, ooh, we're better because we're wealthy. That might be where it sprang from, you know? Okay, so I was talking about the judge. And I often, I'm going to refer to him as a judge just because it's easier. But he was born a couple of years before the Civil War. And from all reports, he was an asshole, much like his daughter would be. Oh, my um, God. An asshole cool. begat an asshole. Okay. It's true. He, he had Shock. one sibling. Well, kind of. I mean, you'll understand in a second. Uh, he had a younger brother by 13 months. His name was Thomas Meredith Tan. And their parents were Thomas Austin Tan and Matilda Ann Penelope Floyd. Oh, my goodness, those names. Now, his father died in battle during the Civil War in 1863. Oh, I mean, he died in 1862. So, as I'm, Hmm. you know, I I have stories on all this. So, anytime you want to ask about a story, just jump in. I figure we can do it that way as well. The boys were three and four years old. And so their mother remarried a James Culberson around 1865. And to the boys, James was their father. That's who raised them. Their mother and James would have some children. So they did have some half siblings. Both Thomas and George went into law and became lawyers. Uh, Now, the information I got is from this official something on something, the state of Mississippi book. And it gave little profiles of some people that were involved in official state affairs. According to it, George attended a Baptist college in Cleburne, Texas for one year around 1875. By 1887, he had earned an AB degree from a school in Daleville, Mississippi, which I looked at Daleville, Mississippi. I don't know where he would have gone to school there. This is a teeny tiny little town. So if there was a school, it's not there anymore. And he was licensed to practice law in 1887. What I found interesting was the 1880 census. He was working as a school teacher while his brother Thomas farmed. And they had seven other people living with the two of them. Their other people living with him were all black or indigenous. That's interesting. So this is after the Civil War. And they were all working as laborers. This is the judge? Yeah, the judge. Okay. This is before he got married. I do wonder if these were former slaves for the family that they were still living with them. Mm-hmm. I just, I don't know. He married Beulah Yates. In October 1887. And like Zelda said earlier, they were both working, but they only both worked for a short time. So it's in 1900. 
he's a lawyer and she is working as a milliner at the time. And both of their children are attending school and they had a mortgage on their home. So they have a home, it's got a mortgage. By 1910, they owned the home outright and Beulah no longer worked outside the home. Hmm. So I believe her working was a way to help with the finances to get that home where they wanted. In 1915, George ran for office to be a judge and he won. He was elected what was called a chancellor. Basically, he was in a chancery court until 1928. He held his position. Do we know what that is? Yeah, <laughs> you do? No, I do don't. You? Oh, no. okay. <laughs> Miss Lawyer, Isn't do you that know? a kind of civil court? I'm going to look it up to make sure I'm right. But um, okay. yeah, it's a kind of civil court. Um, it, it's a court of equity. And so it okay. means instead of money, then you like have to like do a thing. This is a terrible definition. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you have to do a thing. Anyway, it's um, a kind of common law court, if that helps anything. Okay. Sorry that, about that. that. That's okay. He was in the role until 1928, although he was not officially ousted from the role until 1932. But in 1922, he actually ran for governor of Mississippi. Hmm. Clearly, he lost. But he wow. did have high political ambitions. Hmm. So, And this is after Georgia was out of the house and and already working with yeah. orphans. I have a thing to say. Okay. <laughs> okay. So I looked up what are chancery courts in Mississippi. Okay. They have jurisdiction over disputes and matters involving equity, domestic matters, including adoptions, custody disputes, and divorces, <laughs> guardianships, oh. sanity hearings, wills, and challenges to the constitutionality of state laws. So it's a civil judge. Yeah, except you can't get yeah. money. It's not like it's not like for torts or things like that. Oh, it's matters as opposed yeah. to yeah. yeah. Okay, but yeah, adoptions. Yeah, yeah, I caught that. Yeah. I did. Yes, and <laughs> like I just said, I mean, he was in 1928. You know, he's in his role, but he's not working, and here's why. This is from the Daily Herald on September 12th, 1928. Chancellor C.G. Tan of Hickory was seriously injured at Montrose Wednesday morning oh when an God. automobile in which he was a passenger went out of control and ran 100 yards and turned over. The car went out of control? Yeah. The chancellor fell between the doors and was badly crushed. Ooh. And that was the end of part one, Stealing Babies, covering Georgia Tan. Please join us next time. We'll be back in two weeks with part two of Stealing Babies, and you really don't want to miss it. We're getting really deep into her tree, and oh my, some of the stuff you can look forward to is us talking about her lover, Anne Atwood, and all the lies they did to protect themselves and that relationship. Then what happened to her daughter and her grandchildren? And she had a brother, and his life was tragic in so many ways. And we'll learn about some of the rumors and supposition about him, as well as the dramatic murder and so much more. We hope to see you again. Where if you enjoyed our discussion on murder and family, we would love it if you would subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. You could also help support our podcast by becoming a patron on patreon.com slash murderousroots. 
For more information on this episode and past episodes, as well as merchandise, just go to our website at murderousroots.com. And of course, you can also find us on social media at Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and even on TikTok. Thanks, everyone.